Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Today, our guest is David Jurgens. David is an assistant professor in the University of Michigan. Um, he is going to talk to us about his paper, Measuring the Evolution of a Scientific Field Through Citation Frames. It was published in Tackle 2018. So uh, the first part of the paper focuses on the problem of classifying paper citations with labels such as background, extension, and future work. Uh, you introduce a new data set of paper citations and use it to train a state-of-the-art classifier for this task. In the second part, you apply this classifier to about 2,000 NLP papers and observe interesting patterns in the scientific uh, literature. What was the main motivation behind this work, and uh, why do you think it's an important problem to study? Uh, well, it really started at the end of the paper, and we worked backwards. I would say we were pretty interested in how the scientific fields have evolved over time. I mean, NLP is a pretty interesting case study in that, because we started out of linguistics, I mean, you know, decades ago, some might argue centuries ago at this point, it, which it, it sort of straddles the boundary of a hard and soft science, but we're, we're very much in the, the computer science realm these days. And so we were curious how that, that's played out in terms of the community and how we behave as scientists. And so to kind of get at that question, we said, well, it'd be nice to look at how we're citing one another. Uh, and that became a hard question in itself. So uh, the first half of the paper is kind of the, the building the scientific tool to let, let us answer a big question. And the, the second part of the paper is really just trying to answer that question from different aspects. How, how do citations let us know how we switched from linguistics to computer science? Uh, so the... That's, that is a, it being this uh, this argument from rapid discovery science. So the, there's this uh, famous paper, but well, somewhat famous paper by Collins. Uh, um, so if you think about the humanities and the uh, to some of the soft sciences uh, or the social sciences, there's lots of argumentation about like what's right or what's true. And, and so you can think about you know if you think back to the 80s, like how do we evaluate whether a parser was good or not? You know, well, you have your data set and I have my data set, and we have to argue nonstop about which one's better or which kind of cases. But one of the things that uh, Collins argues is that the way to get around this is to have consensus. And so it turns out if you run your parser on the pen tree bank and you score better, well, we all agree that that's a better, that's a better parser. So you get this, like, building of intellectual lineage, so we're all, like, about extending each other's tools, or uh, and you get consensus that, okay, what does it mean for us to be uh, progressing as a field? And so we thought that the citations would reveal this uh, for us in terms of like how often authors sort of acknowledge versus contrasting each other's work and how they uh, you know, incorporate others' works into their own. Right. So you constructed a new data set for, for the task of classification, uh, for, for classifying citations. Mm-hmm. Could you elaborate on, on the classification scheme that you use at the annotation process? Sure. So, I mean, classific- trying to figure out what exactly a citation is doing is not, not a new problem. I mean, there's... There's stuff back to the 60s and, and probably earlier to some degree that, that have looked at this. Um, our, our big goal was to find something that we thought captured the, the, the motivation for the big question of like how do scientists change their behavior. Um, so we, we boiled it down to six classes uh, and that we thought a classifier could easily distinguish between. And then we, uh, we annotated around 2,000 data points. So, so we ended up having uh, you know, background versus motivation, like what actually drives the field. We wanted to look at um, whether you use something or whether you extend the work. Um, I, I think that one was kind of a fun one because we often hear that, like, it's better not to be incremental. So we thought we would probably not see something in terms of extension. Like, no one wants to just keep extending someone else's work. Um, 
And the comparison, we had this comparison and contrast, so it's trying to align something about your work and another's work. We thought that would be useful to think about. And then uh, it's kind of another curious citation type that we, we hadn't seen before, but we kept it popping up when we were looking at papers, is that the, in the conclusion, people are always doing this future work pointer. It's like, oh, in the future, we're going to do this thing. And often, you know, it's trying to satisfy some reviewer. Like, you want to you wanna, like point to the future reviewers that, oh, we thought about this, but we're not doing it just yet. Uh, and so we wanted to throw that in because we thought that that might actually have some interesting you know, implications later on that we never saw, but we were still pretty happy to include. Yeah, uh, these seem like useful classes. Uh, I wonder if you've seen... Uh, cases where like multiple classes apply, uh, ex especially things like uses and extension. I can see many cases where you are using the, that work and also extending it at the same time. Yeah, so we so if we saw uses and extensions, we would lean towards extension. There actually weren't as many as we thought when we really boiled it down. Uh, I would say the hardest one is was actually background versus comparison or contrast. Because sometimes it was tough to tell whether they're just acknowledging past work or if they're trying to make some sort of implicit comparison. Um, the danger, of, like as an author, of making a comparison or contrasting statement is that the reviewer will, will want more from that. Like, oh, you should compare more. Or you should actually evaluate against them. Whereas if you just sort of acknowledge them and sort of move on, that uh, uh, you, you can sort of get away with not doing that comparison. However, if one of those people is the reviewer that you're acknowledging, they're like, oh, well, you should have said more. And then... You know, it's kind of this, uh, uh, I don't know, chicken and the egg game of which one do you do, or prisoners in the game or something. Right, so the, uh, just to, uh, to clarify, so each element or each instance in your training set uh, ha has one citation context. So possibly uh, one reference may have multiple contexts, and uh, what you're really classifying is this particular context. Yeah, so it's just one particular context. We definitely see that all, uh, citations get used differently throughout the paper. This the same citation. Well, you know, you'll use it as motivation in the intro, and then you'll compare against it later, and then you'll, um, you know, maybe use some features that it uses as well. Right. So, and then for each of these, you give them one label out of the six classes. Uh, yes, for each individual context, individual usage. Right. So, who did the annotations? Uh, myself and uh, let's see, uh, the third author, Rain Hoover. All right. Yeah, that must have been a lot of fun. <laughs> oh man, it was. Uh, there was a lot of back and forth. We ended up, we wanted to make sure the data set was like as high as quality as we could get. So we actually adjudicated every disagreement in the data set. Like we went through, uh, just, I, I mean, that helped us as annotators uh, for sure. But like, I, I'm really confident that our, our annotations are good, but it was, it was a labor of love. I'll say that much. All right. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, so the, what's the total, uh, what's the output of this? So how many examples do you have? How many papers? Uh, see, oh geez, I have to look back in the paper itself. But I want to say, so we tried to sample uniformly across years. I mean, certainly one of the, and uniformly across venues. So in order to kind of get the diversity of what kinds of things we saw. So we didn't just want workshop papers. We didn't want just conference papers. Uh, I want to say there's around 1,969 uh, citations in the paper. That's the, the number in the paper. And so, so we had a 133 papers. Occasionally, we would sample a, a few extra citations if we couldn't find something. So we like, we may have oversampled from conclusions and from introductions to try and find a few extra motivation citations or future work citations, um, just to get a sense of where those might occur. Right, and are these also reflected in the uh, development and test sets, or are they only represented, overrepresented in the training set? Uh, so we actually we we didn't do uh, test train and dev splits for this. We just did cross validation. 
However, had I done this again, I would totally have done test train and death split thinking about uh, it, w- it would have been much better for the uh, hyperparameter optimization had we done that. Yeah, I, I always like uh, struggle with this when I'm constructing a new data set, uh, especially when I'm oversampling. Uh, it's not always clear whether we should include the non, non-natural distribution as, as part of the evaluation. Agreed, agreed. Yeah, it's, it's something that we, looking back on, we probably should have thought more about uh, in terms of the data set construction. I think because of the, the annotation effort involved in getting each of these and the fact that it's not a large data set, we, we ended up not doing the test train and death split because losing 20% of the data was like, wow, we still yeah. don't have a lot of data at that point. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But yeah, it's still, you know, I, I do think going forward, we would have taken that, that data set size hit and done it just because it, I think it makes for better science doing test train and death splits. Uh, all right, so uh, moving on to the paper, you developed a state-of-the-art model for classifying uh, citation functions. Uh, could you say a few words about uh, how the model works? Sure. So we, uh, um, well, we, we thought about it from the big picture of what what kind of features might uh, capture how what, or how important a citation is used. So there's been plenty of work. Uh, Simona Tufel has done great work in her argumentation zoning papers, looking at the lexical patterns that... Uh, like lex- lexical patterns that capture the citation usages or rhetorical framing effects. So we, we built in some of those, but then we added a bunch of stuff looking at uh, topical effect, uh, top, uh, the topics that occur, uh, like sections, um, in terms of like how the paper, or where the citation occurs within the larger structure of the paper. Um, we did some larger, uh, larger features look at how the citation is used within the field as a whole. Like how many times is it cited with other papers? How central is it to the paper? You can think that the famous papers end up uh, just sort of sucking up a ton of citations as sort of uh, guiding posts for people in the introduction. So if you see something that's highly cited, there's a good chance it's either background or it's a, uh, a user citation that everyone's using the same kind of data set. So we had a, uh, we had these uh, these features. We had things about you know how how the paper is used or how the reference is used throughout the work. So how many kinds of citation does it have? Is it used indirectly? So if you uh, talk about uh, Stanford Core NLP, and then you keep using the word Core NLP without citing it explicitly. That can be a good indication of uh, its kind of intent. I say by far that there's a lot more lexical features in terms of trying to capture the context around a citation in a general way. Um, and then so we we kind of dump all of these into a, a random forest classifier, uh, which performed uh, by far the the best out of all the different uh, methods we tried. Did you have any features that looked at the the cited paper? So that was I would that's the that's the missing link for me. I would love to do some sort of alignment between the cited paper and the citing paper. The big issue was for was getting full access to full text text. So we could have looked at ref, uh, citations that were just within the ACL anthology, um, but I think that this was, that probably would have been under half of the total citations. Um, so, you know, famous papers like WordNet, just not in it. Anytime you cite word to vec from its NIPS paper, uh, that's not, we wouldn't have full text for that unless we went out and scraped it as well. So th- there's just a lot of missing data there. But I, I do think that's actually, that's the most exciting, like, development for me is looking at this uh, multi, if you have two full text doing the alignment between that, trying to understand how they relate together. Would you have abstracts for these other papers at least? Would that be enough? You could probably do some. I mean, I, I suspect that even an abstract alone would do quite well. Uh, I don't know if we could get abstracts for all of them. In some sense, it boils down to getting the data that 
But yeah, that'd be interesting to see. Uh, as a plug here, we do have the open corpus uh, that we released in, uh, in AI2, where it does include the abstracts for the open part, of which includes all the archive applications, for example. But uh, yeah, I do think that it's uh, it's not an easy thing to include because oftentimes when we cite a paper, we don't cite everything in the paper. We cite a specific part of it, and uh, the abstract doesn't usually capture or doesn't necessarily capture that part. Yeah. I mean, I'd still be curious to try it with just abstracts. I think it's a it's a fun question to, to think about how two papers relate. Yeah, uh, the other thing to mention here is that there has been a couple data sets released for uh, like indicating where in the cited paper this citation is, is referring to. Uh, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a task that people are currently working on. Uh, we haven't done a huge progress on it, but it's, uh, at least there's some data there. Oh, nice. I will definitely uh, I'll check that out. Okay, so uh, the next part of the paper talks about uh, doing macro-analysis of the citation patterns in NLP papers. Uh, would you like to tell us a bit about uh, what are the hypotheses that you wanted to test uh, in this part? Yeah, so we, we had a, a few different uh, questions we wanted to get at. I mean, so the big question was looking at how the field changes as a whole, but we also wanted to kind of work our way backwards from there to, to build our confidence in the model, so to speak. Uh, so one thing we, we wanted to ask, which is kind of a, the, the sanity check, which was the first uh, the first experiment, well, how does citation usage vary by section? So we all, uh, well, not all of us, I certainly wasn't aware until I started digging into the literature, but there's a lot of work on discourse analysis showing how authors will phrase or uh, rhetorical structures to match their argument. So it's like these argumentation moves um, within a... a the sections of the paper. So we try and like lay the groundwork in the introduction and we sort of defend our work and related work and then uh, how we describe and present our works in the evaluation and results section. So we thought uh, citations should vary in, in terms of like their, their function within these sections, but no one had looked at this. So we said, hey, let's, let's take a look at that and see if we actually see that the citation functions match the rhetorical structure of the sections or the expected rhetorical structures. Um, do you want me to go into that or talk more about that, or you want me to talk more about the hypotheses? Um, I mean, well, yeah, we can uh, talk about this in a bit more detail before going to the next ones. Yeah, there, there are multiple interesting uh, questions that you have. Yeah, I mean, so, well, thankfully, uh, yeah, the, the result just falls out. It's kind of like, it's almost like a null result because it, you expect it to be there, and then it's just there, and it matches your intuition all the way. But it was kind of a relief to be like, okay, yes, this uh, this actually it works. <laughs> so yeah, you see this like big, this clear difference where like no, yeah, I mean, I, I see value, I see value in doing this. Yeah, it, it was nice to show that they align. Uh, and you see, like, it's kind of fun to think about how my own paper, like when I write my own papers now, I'm like, okay, yeah, my motivation is in the introduction. Maybe the one surprising thing that we, we saw was in related work. There's just a lot of acknowledgement within related work that's not like an actual comparison. It's like, I can think of papers that I've read where it's like, oh, yes, others have done this work, blah, 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 blah. And it's like kind of this block of citation where there's no like actual substantive comparison. It's just acknowledgement. But so that was kind of fun to see. You also see like this increasing amount of uh, punting future work forward as the paper goes on. So by the time you hit the conclusion, there's like a ton of future work citations. But you see it in results in discussion where maybe, you know, you can see authors trying to defend themselves against potential reviewers and say like, hey, we acknowledge this is a potential thing, but we're not going to do it now. Um, so that was, that was fun to see as well, that like that extra citation function actually uh, played out in terms of the rhetorical moves. Yeah, was it easy to distinguish the future from the background? Yeah, actually, it wasn't too bad. Uh, there's, there's a pretty strong lexical signal where people just literally say, in future work, we will you know, try this data set or use this method. Future ends up being like a very strong keyword. Yeah, I guess you also like this is how you, over, you oversample these examples. 
So for that, we actually, I mean, we, we just annotated a bunch of uh, conclusions. Um, oh. So I would say that we weren't particularly biasing towards features. Actually, so I would say that we, we annotated the last three sections of papers. Uh, it wasn't just conclusions, because otherwise you have this bias towards certain types of things occurring in one section. So I guess I misunderstood this. That, uh, I, I thought what you did is uh, you had uh, something like 52 papers where you annotated all mm -hmm. the references in them. And then you oversampled uh, using some queries uh, to get an, an oversampling of the of the minority classes. Right, but it, it wasn't just we didn't just annotate those uh, uh, the contexts that occurred that had those uh, those queries in them, and we also just looked at other kinds of like the sections, like the later sections of the papers as well. I see. So we didn't want to bias the classifier towards certain kinds of queries or features. I see. Yeah, that sounds good. So when you were annotating the data. Were you reading the paper from beginning to end and finding all the citations and annotating them? Uh, so we used uh, we used the Brat annotation tool, which is like I mean, shout out to the makers of that. That saved us so much time. That's amazing. Uh, so we, we had like the paper open in one half of the window, and then this annotation tool that we had already used the parse it extracted uh, citations from the other uh, or from the ACL re reference corpus in the other window, and then we sort of walked through the paper because uh, sometimes it's not clear like where the citation is occurring, like which section it's in, or like what's kind of the larger discourse around it. Sometimes it's really clear uh, what the what the function is just from the local context, but you kind of would, would skim the paper. Uh, often you don't have to re read the whole paper. Do you think there was any bias? Like I, I'm imagining like, oh, I'm reading a related work section. This is probably background. Like maybe this is going through my head as I'm reading. Mm. I wonder if, if there was some bias in, in the annotation process because you were looking at the paper and not just the citation context in isolation? Well, um, we tried to focus just on the context alone uh, as much as possible. I would say sometimes in cases of, in, like, sometimes you could find that the context, like, there's a preceding context even that, like, switches it where it's like us. You know, like, for comparison, they might say several works have differed in explicitly how they used, uh, you know, a certain classifier. And then there's the context looks like they're just doing a background, but it's actually within this larger comparison structure. Um, so that's where the, the paper helped out uh, specifically. I would say that we tried explicitly not to look at the, the, the section itself in terms of like, oh, I'm in a certain kind of section. But yeah, I, I, you know, potentially that, that could have biased this. Yeah, annotation is hard, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is this really like a bias that we want to avoid, though? Because it, at least there are... From the perspective of the reader, you're all, you're always going to have this bias. While you're reading a certain section, you have certain expectations, and if the classifier is trying to um, simulate that, then it's it's a natural bias that we probably want to keep in. I, right. I guess like you mentioned earlier, David, that uh, the result you expected just kind of fell out. I like that. That does make a whole lot of sense that these that these citations would be used this way, but you just have to worry about how was their bias? Are we just reflecting our biases? Yeah, yeah. Could, could our, like, could we have biased the model to find this result? Uh, and like, surprise, the thing that we did, yeah, that, I think that was a constant worry uh, in terms of all of our stuff, all of the experiments that like, somehow we had biased the model. I, I think going back to the annotations, I still, I still agree with, with the, how we constructed it. Uh, but I, I do think that there could be some latent bias here that we're just not aware of. Um, we tried our best not to do that. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you did say you explicitly tried to like not use too much of the surrounding uh, um, paper, only look at the context. So I, I would expect that there is some. It's small. Uh, I was just curious. Yeah, it'd be nice to try and measure that somehow to see if you if you had the larger paper. Maybe we could actually do a pilot study to see if, if there's some experimentation. 
I'd be curious where we would see it the most. Uh, even with like a novice reader who doesn't have the expectation of like what you expect to see in a conclusion. Um, all right. So the next question uh, that you studied in this part of the paper was like uh, seeing how different venues exhibit different citation patterns. Yeah. So uh, this is what we're trying to get. Uh, we're thinking about framing here a little bit in terms of like what does it mean to present yourself as good science. So having uh, submitted to tackle, it's like, how do you have to justify your, your argument to get into tackle? You need like lots of citations. You need lots of comparison. And we thought that we might see quite a bit of difference in terms of the venues. Um, so we actually looked at two sub-experiments here. One, one we looked at the, the high-level venues, like the different conferences, uh, workshops as a whole, semivals as a whole, and the two journals in the NLP field. Um, and the other one, like, uh, so Hal has this blog post uh where he, he talks about uh, workshops in the ACL is like ACL workshops are like mini conferences. Um, and we said, that's testable. Like we can actually test that with our method. And so we kind of we threw it in. We said, have workshops evolved to look more like conferences? So if workshops differ in terms of how they present their science and uh, citation functions like reflect this like effort in terms of how you do the science, then we should actually see like the workshop papers start to cite more like uh, conference papers. So we, we, uh, we ran both of those experiments. Uh, in the first one, we actually we do see that venues differ quite a bit. Um, probably the, the most shocking difference uh, is between the journals and the workshops. So you see that in computational linguistics uh, and in tackle that you need much more comparison with other work, um, when you, even when you normalize for length. Whereas in, in Semival, which is kind of the uh, like a big bake-off, uh, you don't have to compare against a lot of other people. There's, there's often, you're on, working on a new task, there's not a lot of people to compare against. So you see it's much more integrative, like we just used as much many different features or other kinds of works as we can. So there's, there's actually big kind of venue framing effects. Um, in, in terms of the workshops, though, we actually did find that workshops have become more conference-like. Uh, and that trend actually gets accelerated by long-running workshops. Um, so like the there's several workshops like you know workshop on machine translation became the conference on machine translation, um, and, and so you actually see this you build more sort of institutional knowledge and expectations that um, the papers start to look more and more conference like in terms of like the the way that they cite other works. There's more expectation for uh, uh, for comparison and for uh, substantive discussion. I'm curious if you have also found or analyzed the progression for individual venues. Yeah. <laughs> so we actually, yeah, we ran that analysis. I think somewhere in the metadata that we released is a, an alignment from all the workshop numbers and ACLs, uh, like when it's like W72, blah, blah, blah. Or sorry, it's like, you know, W16 and there's a four-digit code. That corresponds to an individual workshop. So we actually aligned all the titles for all the workshops for all years. So you can actually like see the progression. Because we really want to see, like, can you actually see uh, EMNLP and, like, the workshop on machine translation actually, like, become conference-like individually? Uh, I think we did see that. It just wasn't convincing enough to, for us to put it in the paper. Like, we just didn't have enough data points, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. Another one is probably ACL. I imagine over the years that compare or contrast uh, the number of comparisons have been increasing. I Maybe uh, I I don't know. Actually, yeah, I think we did, I think we did run EACL. Uh, although maybe I shouldn't claim this on a podcast that we <laughs> uh, I saw that result. But I do I do think that we did see EACL become 
more like NACL and uh, ACL in, in the way that it cites, though. Yeah, and uh, of course, the number of papers have been increasing over the years, so that makes it a little, uh, interesting. Like, you, you probably want to... Uh, yeah, it's, it's not... Like, the number... The num- I, I suppose the, the distribution that you're, that's currently represented is uh, more biased towards uh, more recent trends. Right, and there are more workshops, uh, uh, you know, each year as well. So we had that effect for the workshops as well. Yeah, so I guess this is a natural like uh, uh, segue for the next question, which is venue evolution. Uh, oh, I guess we already talked about this. Uh, we, this is what the how the workshops are evolving into conference like. Yeah, we were trying. Well, one of the things we, we were trying to we were hoping to figure out is uh, what's the next workshop to become a conference. Ah, uh, nice. <laughs> But we, we, we didn't have any clear results for that. Um, so you're not going to make a bet right now? <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I mean, if I, okay, if I had to make a bet, uh, I would say maybe something on you know, multi-word expressions. They had, a, they had a strong track record, what can I say? Yeah, Nathan Schneider is going to be very happy about that. <laughs> uh, cool. So the next one, I think, is uh, looking at uh, can you predict the impact of a paper based on how they use uh, citation? Yeah, yeah. So maybe a little self-interested here. Like, how do I make my paper have more impact? So, can we predict the number of citations five years out? Like, that was kind of the, like the simple citation prediction task. Um, and and again, this, we're kind of resting on this notion that if the way that you cite is like reflects the overall quality of your science or like how you make your arguments, then maybe this adds information that would help you predict uh, citation impact. So we. Uh, we threw a bunch of like text features, uh, topical diversity, year, number of authors, number of citations. Um, and we actually do find that adding some citation information uh, helps. So particularly works that uh, compare against other more works and works that uh, use or incorporate other other kinds of uh, works get ci- higher higher citations. So it's like things that integrate more and offer more substantive comparisons uh, get cited more. So that was kind of interesting to see. Like it's, uh, it's really it's a an integrative science that, that plays off that pays out pays off in the end. Could you say a few words about the other factors that you included in while you're modeling this? Because we we know they're like this is this analysis is only as good as um, th- there are many like correlates, right? We we don't think that any specific uh, feature would be predictive of the impact. So what other factors did you include in the study? Uh, sure. So let's see. Uh, so we try to control for year because there's certainly there's more cita- more papers per year, so that increases the number of citations. So that, that should actually uh, regress out to some degree the number, like the size of the field. We looked for the particular topic of the paper. So some topics are more, uh, more likely to get more citations. We look for the diversity. So things that integrate... Uh, Lots of different topics may be interdisciplinary and could receive multiple. So if you look at like the, uh, the entropy of the topic distribution, um, we look. We know that there's a correlation between the number of authors and the end of the number of citations, potentially due to like multiple self citations from each of the authors. Uh, and we look for how many citations that it has within the paper. So that controls to some degree f- uh, um, for length of the paper and for like how much it's trying to do. Uh, certainly, this is not like the most uh, comprehensive of all uh, citation prediction methods, but it seemed to match with uh, those features ended up being used by lots of other citation, citation prediction uh, methods. One thing that I think we, we probably uh, 
would improve the model uh, that's missing is author institution or affiliation. Uh, that just seemed to be nearly impossible to get for with high enough quality for the for the whole data set. But that ends up playing quite a bit in terms of like institutional prestige, uh, you know, the rich get richer sort of uh, effect. Right, and just author uh, the author's itch index uh, is also a problem. Yeah, yeah. So trying to align all the authors in the paper with that information metadata was just we we looked into it, but it just was too infeasible to do for like you know one study. Of, of the paper. Oh, I agree. I yeah, I worked a little bit on this before uh, this, earlier this year, and it was not easy. But I do think that it's it's something that would really help improve the model, um, especially if you think about how authors, like individual authors, uh, use their different citations. Um, all right. So the last uh, part of this section, I think, was uh, like looking at how rapid uh, is our NLP field evolving. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about this? Yeah, so, so this is getting back to this rapid discovery science hypothesis of like, do we actually see increased consensus in the field? And like, the, the, well, to get to be rapid discovery, you need increased consensus and like the development of an intellectual lineage. So we're, uh, if you think about like physics, the, the metaphor I like to think about is the telescope. Like we still have telescopes around, but they look very different. There's like gravitational wave telescopes instead of like optical telescopes, although we still have those too. So if you think about like parsing, you know, back in the day we had some like rule-based parser and now we have like sequence-to-sequence-based parsers or something, you know, the like, transformer-based parsers. We have, like this incredible crazy technology. So the, the method's there, but like the, the technology underneath it is, has changed. So, so we ended up looking at how, how authors have changed in terms of how they, they cite uh, to try and get at these. So one thing we, we saw was we saw increased consensus. Um, so what we, what we ended up observing is that, uh, Author, this is this remarkable drop-off starting in the 90s where authors no longer compare to other, other, to other authors. And instead, they just acknowledge them. They're like, yeah, we're good. Like, you, other work has been done. Um, and the thing that actually ends up taking the place of that is uh, this uses citation. So we all start to, to use more others' work more. We compare against others' work less. And the things that we're actually using uh, like soak up increasing numbers of citations. So if we think about what happened in the 90s, this is like the advent of the big data sets and the big resources. Uh, so WordNet, PenTreeBank, some other corpora that showed up around that time. But everyone starts to use these to evaluate their data sets or to evaluate their methods. So we no longer have to compare against five other papers. We just, just have to compare against who was the best paper on the PenTreeBank the year before. And so that like significantly drops the number of, uh, of comparisons that we have to do. That's it. Quite surprising to me. I When I look at older papers, I, at least my impression is that they tend to have fewer comparisons. So I, I wonder if, do you think this might have something to do with uh, looking at the percentages of, instead of total count? It's true. It could be. I want to, I'm trying to think if we looked at the total. I know that we looked at the total count, but it was very early on. I do think that older papers tend to have fewer citations overall. The field was smaller, so maybe there wasn't as much to compare against. So that could potentially like uh, potentially shift the percentage higher. But we do, I mean, so in the 1980 to 1990, it's like 40% of citations are comparison, whereas in like the 2000 to 2010, it's like 17%. Yeah. And I don't think that the count, the count difference would actually explain that, that you know, more than half of the the, the mat, probability mass of the comparisons disappearing. Yeah, it's a big difference, and uh, I find it pretty curious. It, when we saw the graph, we were like, "What is going on? Like that? That's 
that's a shocking trend, and it's not something we expected, but we definitely see it in the data. Did you do any kind of qualitative analysis to see, like, is the nature of this citation different? Like, I'm, I'm thinking of some older work that I'm familiar with that just isn't as empirical as we are these days. And so, like, what does comparison and contrasting, like, what, what kind of citation is that 40 years ago? Oh, so, like, the, the language, yeah. I don't know if we looked at the... Like it looked at it for that particular aspect. I mean, it could be that we talked, uh, you know, the field talked about their comparisons differently in the 80s and the early 90s. Um, yeah, that's a good question to think about whether the yeah the the rhetoric around those citations actually changed. Yeah, I'm remembering papers that talked about uh, weights in a model as like dollars and costs, and like this isn't something you're going to actually run an experiment with. It was arguing like a here's a conceptual thing. I'm going to argue for why this is a good model, but I'm not actually going to run any experiments. And these days we run lots of experiments, right? Um, at least a lot of papers do. Um, and I, I just wonder what exactly this compare or contrast means over time. And if things have changed, like... I'd say the, the, one, the one funny quirk that we saw in the paper uh, was right around like 2010. We start to see like a, a uptick again in the number of background citations. Um, and this was because... Well, we we're kind of thinking, like, why would this change? Um, the ACL started allowing unlimited references. And so we started seeing, like, people just kind of packing their paper a little bit more of, like, well, I'm going to try and defend against reviewers and, like, at least acknowledge people who might be reviewers. And you, see, you start to see that, like, just shift up slightly. And sort of that ends up taking the place of, of more motivation. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Uh, like, the timing of this with uh, allowing unlimited references, I think is very interesting. Yeah, I mean, the other thing we, we wanted to look at, but we weren't sure how to get at just yet, uh, was the the, uh, the anthology itself going online. So one thing that would never made it to the paper is, there were a few volumes of the anthology that had delayed release dates, like one or two years before they ended up making it online. And if that changed how, if you never saw the paper, you wouldn't know how to cite it. And so if you, if we looked at the citation usage uh, for papers with that kind of natural experiment where they just weren't online, um, we just we just never had enough data to, to actually get a strong result for that. Um, but I do think that the anthology showing up definitely changed the field because we could actually see what others were doing. Otherwise, you had to have like, you know, Marty Hurst was talking about just shipping files around to people uh, or like it was just this crazy, uh, like, how do we get access to the papers uh, kind of problem. Absolutely. No, thank you for doing this analysis. I think it's a, it's a valuable type of analysis we need more of uh, to kind of better understand uh, how the scientific publishing is, is works, uh, which I guess leads me to one of my questions about scaling this to other domains. Um, so this analysis was focused on NLP domain, which is an important one that we all care about, right? But there are other important domains, and we probably don't want to just like keep like uh, annotating a large number of annotations for each domain because that doesn't scale very well. So I do think it would scale to it would potentially work well for other domains. I think there's probably the models would need a little more training data to learn how to generalize from NLP jargon. I'm sure that it's picked up on some features somehow that cue certain kinds of citations. But I do think that the general the general structure uh, of like the rhetorical moves, like the way the authors present uh, a citation. Um, there, there's enough there that would let it to generalize to other fields. Whether you would see like the whether the results in the other half of the paper would hold for other fields, I don't know actually. 
That's something I'd be really curious to see. Probably the biggest block, so it's something we actually wanted to try at first, but the biggest challenge was getting access to full text uh, for a lot of different fields. And so that, we're like, well, we know NLP and we have a full data set for NLP, so let, let's go for that first. Yeah, and NLP honestly is a, it's kind of a unique case here because uh, not very other domains have uh, the ACL, like, and the equivalent of an ACL ontology. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I'm incredibly thankful for all the, the work that's been put into that. Uh, like, all the folks involved deserve a, a big shout out for that. Absolutely. Uh, another thing that occupies my mind whenever, uh, like, I'm trying to do this sort of macro analysis is how well do we need our classifiers to perform before we can use them to make uh, studies like this? Yeah, and that was a big concern on our mind. I mean, it's a hard task, and like the classifier performance isn't like 0.9 or anything like that. Uh, one of the things that, that led us to say we're confident in the results is looking at an error analysis. So if, even though the, I think the F1 is somewhere in like 0.5, like 0.53, which sounds low, uh, and in fact may be low, but uh, one of the reasons for that is if the the smaller classes don't do well, it just drags down the F1. And so what ends up happening to dra particularly drag down our F1 was motivation. There's not, a, there's not a ton of motivation citations, and they end up getting classified as background, which is not a terrible mistake to make. You could probably make some claim that motivation is a kind of background citation. Um, the other extent mistake was uh, extends often gets classified as use, uh, which is, again, not a as, like it's kind of semantically related in terms of like you're using some kind of methodology, and I think if if we fixed that, we would probably have a Mac like a, an F1 of you know 0 0.7, 0 0.8. So it was just that the there were systematic mistakes that just dragged the whole thing down quite a bit. Um, for so given that we saw that, I would say that the the trends didn't differ too much. Um, we tried actually using a four class model as well, um, and the, I would say that we saw the, the same kinds of trends. So comparison still drops, and you still see uses uh, go up quite a bit. I forget what the performance for the four-class model was when I ran it, but that sort of we said, okay, there's going to be systematic mistakes, but we're probably just undercounting extends and motivation, and, and so we can go forward. Yeah. So I, I guess uh, to come back to my question, you're saying we need to do an uh, like a qualitative error analysis and and judge uh, like there's going to be a judgment call here and, and we're going to have to decide do we feel like the results of the classifier are good enough to do the analysis agreed yeah I, I think that you need you need to do some kind of qualitative analysis to justify like if you're if you're not perfect what kind of mistakes you're making and is the would the bias in those mistakes affect the overall conclusions like is the bias in the right direction or the wrong direction right and it seems important to to think about uh domain issues because i I don't remember where you said all of your uh, your annotations came from, but I assume it was a subset of the domains that you applied the classifier to, and maybe there's some domain shift that has some bias problems too, right? Yeah, well, we, so we tried to, we, we, were, we thought about that problem, so we tried to pull it from all the different workshops uh, and all the different years, so we would capture any kind of domain or, you know, no one talked about neural networks or... SVM was huge in the 90s, so we tried to at least be robust to that, but you know, we, we can't cover everything. So Yeah, great. Th there could be domain effects yeah. for sure. I think that'll actually be the, if you try and generalize this to other fields, I think that will be the hardest problem. It's actually, I mean, like certainly like our topic features will not work well if you run this on like the humanities or even on physics. Uh, and so you actually need to, to rerun, uh, to, to regenerate like how, how domain actually talks about their citations. Uh, all right. Uh, that 
was all the questions I had. Do you have any other thoughts about this work? Uh, I mean, there's there was a ton of stuff that never made it into the paper. Uh, I think it's a it's a really rich field. So at least I'll you know, anyone listening who wants to poke around at the data. Uh, the citation network itself is something we wanted to, to poke at. So these kind of network motifs of like how papers relate to one another. Um, that just ended up being like yet another paper in itself that was uh, too much to pack into an already packed paper. Um, so we were, I think we were really excited by that, but we just uh, got even more excited by the things that made it into the paper. So um, I, I think it's a, it's a pretty important uh, enriched field. Also, uh, I would say a big thanks to Simone for releasing her data. So we, some of the data that we use in the paper, we actually adapted from another data set. So we've released our data, she's released her data, and I think it's, uh, it's really, really wonderful when people release their data for others to use. Yeah, so again, we're uh, like right now as we're speaking, uh, that the team I'm working on uh, is using this data set that you will release. So thank you for this. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> uh, all right. Thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I mean, this podcast is a great idea. So uh, I look forward to hearing more of them in the future, too.